year was 2000, I had an opportunity that I didn't know was coming my way. I had a chance to attend Super Bowl 34. Even as I was walking into the Georgia Dome, I had no idea that this would go down as one of the best Super Bowls in all of Super Bowl history. If you remember that, it was when the Tennessee Titans, being led by their quarterback Steve or Air McNair, um, they were going up against the St. Louis Rams, the greatest show on turf, led by Kurt Warner. What a game it was. And as I watched there in the stadium, it was amazing. I, you had no idea that it would come down to the wire like it did. The Titans were up against a, a pretty determined Rams team, but they stayed in the game. In fact, near the end of the game, it looked like the Titans were coming back. The Rams had scored, but the Titans drove down and scored again. It looked like the Titans were going to win. But in one play, Kurt Warner threw, I think, a 76-yard pass, and the Rams scored. Was that the end? Sure seemed like it, but the Titans were not giving up. The Titans drove all the way down the field, and with six seconds left, they found themselves on the 10-yard line. Air McNair, Steve McNair, the quarterback, he threw a pass that was picture perfect. It was caught. It looked like they were scoring, but they were stopped on the one-yard line, and the game was over. That was a great experience. I remember just standing there and everybody in the stadium was in shock at that ending. But as I think about that today on Super Bowl Sunday, and as I think about the kind of people that I've spent my life around, I recognize that there are a lot of folks like us who know the right truth. And in a lot of ways, we do the right thing. But we still find ourselves falling short of that life that Jesus promised, a life that Jesus calls one that is abundant, that's overflowing. And I want to tell you today that it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to come up even one yard short when it comes to experiencing God's best in your life. I really think you can experience all he has for you, but if you're going to do that, you're going to have to deal with something that we call anxiety. Now, let me just see if you're tracking with me. How many of you would be honest enough to say, um, yeah, I sometimes struggle with anxiety? Let me see your hands. All right, how about, does it, keep your hands up. How about maybe you didn't answer that one if you said, sometimes, pastor, I worry. Go ahead and raise your hands. All right, that should be all of us except for the few that are lying. And so um, here's what scripture says about anxiety. In Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 25, listen to this. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. I want you today to experience some kind words. But here's the great news. These words are not primarily from me. I want to cover you up in scripture because here's what the Bible says. God's word never is returned void. God's word never goes out that it doesn't have impact where it is. So before we do that, I want to make sure you understand what anxiety is. And, and I kind of wanted to make sure I understood, so I looked it up. And, and this is the definition of anxiety. It's a noun that is a feeling of worry or nervousness or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain 
outcome. So last week we talked about depression and how depression usually takes place because we're focused on our current circumstances or even more often where we're looking in the rearview mirror at what's happened behind us. Anxiety is a little different. Anxiety is when we're fearful about what's in front of us. We're overwhelmed with the future. In the Bible, that word anxious literally means to be stretched in two different directions, to be pulled apart. That's what it feels like when we're anxious, right? And you even feel that in your stomach. You feel like your stomach is being pulled apart. Your hopes are pulling you one way. Your fears are are pulling you another. Your dreams are pulling you one way. Your doubts are pulling you another. And you feel like you're going to be pulled apart. Ultimately, anxiety is fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of those things that we can't control, fear of the future. Man, fear is manifested in a lot of ways. Some fears are rational. I mean, there are sometimes we should be afraid. My daughter, she's 10 years old, but she has no fear. It's kind of crazy. You would think otherwise. She's never seen anything in her life because she was born blind, but she has no fear, except for she gets a little afraid of our little yappy dog named Frosty. But beyond that, no fear. So I'll take her, for example, to Bush Gardens, and she'll want to ride every roller coaster there. She will want to ride that insane thing that goes up real high and is just drops straight down to the bottom. I'll do it with her because I'm a good father, but the whole time I'm just closing my eyes and saying, Jesus, please help me live. I'm speaking the name of Jesus over that ride and those roller coasters. You know, it's rational to fear some things. In fact, some people don't have a healthy sense of fear. Did you know that there are people now that die in selfie-inflicted deaths? They're, They're trying to do something that looks daring, so they're taking a selfie of themselves as they're backing to the edge of a cliff and some have fallen over. At the top of high-rise buildings, the same thing has happened. You know, there should be rational fears in our life. We don't touch a hot burner because we know that will hurt us. There's some things we should stay away from, but there are irrational fears, and they're manifested in all kinds of different ways. If you study this, it's interesting. Did you know the number one thing people fear? You know what it is? It's the fear of public speaking. Number two is the fear of death. And so that means that there are a lot of people that would rather die than talk at somebody else's funeral. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of crazy. There's a fear called cathisophobia. Cathisophobia. You know what that is? It's the fear of sitting. I'm really praying that none of you are struggling with that today. I I think some of you do because I see you keep getting up and going to the bathroom. And then there's one called ablutophobia. Ablutophobia. You know what that is? It's a fear of bathing. So I heard that, and you know what? I I got scared because I'm afraid of sitting next to someone that has the fear of bathing. I mean, that's a very bad thing. Then there's one, it's hard to pronounce, arachibaterophobia. That's the fear. You know what that is? No, that's arachnophobia. This is arachidophobia. Butyrophobia. This is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the top of the roof of your mouth. <laughs> then there's nomophobia. You, want, you know what nomophobia is? 
That would, yeah, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that's no more fears because that's nomophobias, but that's not what it is. No, nomophobia is the, the fear of being without your mobile phone. And some of you are struggling with that because I keep seeing you look it down at it. But it's, uh, that's phone stress. And they even have a phrase to describe people that are struggling with that. They're called constant checkers. I mean, can you just, can you remember a time when you didn't have a cell phone with you and you just weren't constantly checking? Did I miss something? I mean, you drive up by these people on the road and they're at a red light and they've got like 4.2 seconds and they're panicking, reaching for their phone and they're just checking it. And what are they checking? Social media. Yep. Scrolling through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, right there at the stoplight. So... Reader's Digest did an article recently about what would life be like if we didn't have social media because social media stresses me out. Now, there are some things that are good about social media. Like it would be harder to find people that we're looking for if we didn't have social media because we're reconnecting with people. There's some dangers in that too. But you know, they said the number two thing is we wouldn't compare ourselves as much to others. Somebody said if they didn't have social media, they would have to take their cat and go knocking around every door in the neighborhood just to show the funny things their cat can do. <laughs> Somebody said we'd be better and safer drivers. We wouldn't be as overexposed or we're, we're, we would waste less time. What, I, what I'm trying to do is just show you there's a lot of things that create anxiety in our lives. What's creating that in your life? Is it the uncertainty about your health? Is it financial challenges? Is it your relational situation, what it is today, what you wish it were in tomorrow? What's causing you to worry? This is what I know. Worry is often created by stress, that idea that I'm just pulled in different directions. And worry can become a sickness. We talked about that with depression. It's true of worry, too. Do you know that many people, probably some of you, Statistically, you've been to a doctor or to the ER because you thought you were having a heart attack and they did all the tests they could do only to tell you you were having a panic attack. So in this setting, what we have to do is accept that worry is often a stronghold. You know what a stronghold is? Something we've learned that takes hold of us and often we've taken back hold of it. We don't let loose. So Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So what we've been learning in this whole series called Breaking Free is that we have to take those thoughts captive and we have to stop listening to the lies of, of the enemies and, and we have to start preaching to ourselves the truth and specifically the truth of the gospel. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because the Bible says, well, not just the scriptures, Jesus said, worry is always a sin. So that's how we're going to deal with this today. Now, having said that, let me just tell you, there's a lot of good resources. If you say, Pastor, could you just give me some practical help? There's a pretty new book by Louis Giglio called Winning the War on Worry. It's just like a little 
devotional guide, and, and you can read through this, and it has some ways you can pray specifically, and, and some scripture verses you can look at. You can do that, just probably in a short amount of time. If you're a leader or work causes you to worry a lot, this is a great resource by Steve Cuss. It's called Managing Leadership Anxiety. Very practical, very helpful. One of my favorite authors and pastors is Max Lucado. He wrote, wrote a book more devotionally several years ago called Anxious for Nothing. That's good. I love this psychologist named Daniel Amen. He's proven helpful in my life and in our family's life. He's written so much about mental illness and health issues. and um, He wrote this little book called Conquer, Worry, and Anxiety. And I, I would encourage you, if you're struggling, this will be helpful to you. It's very cheap. Paperback book is pretty simple. In fact, so I could turn here, and he's got uh, 25 simple and effective ways to combat worry and, and anxiety. So we could go through those. Like he says, start every day with the words, today is going to be a great day. So he's just reminding us that your mind makes happen what it visualizes. Just true statement. And second, he says, write down three things you're grateful for every day. And, and researchers found that people who did this significantly increased their sense of happiness in just an, in a short period of three weeks, just developing an attitude of gratitude. Or third, he says, every day write down the name of one person you appreciate, then tell them. That's a good practice. Or how about this one? Limit screen time. Do you know studies report a higher level of depression and obesity, hello, with increased time spent with technology? And then exercise is the fifth thing he says. It's the fastest way to feel better. Go for a walk or a run. There's a lot of help that you can get, but I'm not your counselor, right? I'm your pastor, so I didn't come here today to sit on the couch and just tell you how to help yourself because self-help can't be the solution when self is the problem. When self is the problem, we need someone outside of ourselves, someone bigger than ourselves, and that's who we've come to focus on today, and his name is Jesus. So what I'm going to do is, is I'm not dismissing these other things that could be helpful to you. Some of you just need to work on your breathing. Some of you do need to exercise more. There are a lot of good things that can help you. But I want to help you hear the words of Jesus. Because he really had a lot to say about this. For example, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Now, wouldn't it be better if Jesus would have stuttered a little bit? <laughs> if he would have said, don't always worry about your life, or he didn't. Don't worry about your life, what you eat or you drink, or, or, or about your body. Are any of you worrying about your body? What you will wear? It is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you be worrying by worrying at a single hour to your life? Why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire... Will he not much more clothe you? And then notice this. You of little 
faith. I, I want you to see today that according to Jesus, worry seeps into our life when faith is absent in our life. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Um, last week I told you that sometimes depression takes place because chemicals in our brain are imbalanced. It's a biochemical issue. Today I'm telling you that worry takes place when we're spiritually imbalanced. And so let me tell you how the imbalance works. When we worry, our priorities are imbalanced. We're not focusing on the main thing. You've heard that cliche. The main thing is to keep the main thing what? Well, Jesus said the main thing is to stay focused on him. If I were taking notes, I would jot down Matthew 6, the verse we just read. Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. We're focusing on the wrong things. So how do you focus on the right things? Well, here's the good news. Everybody do this. Good. Pat yourself on the back, because you're doing one of the right things right now. When we gather to worship that stimulates us in our faith. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews 10. It says, don't forsake gathering together because when you do, you're encouraging one another in your faith. Have you noticed that usually, if you're seeking the Lord, when you leave church, you feel better? Why is that? Because we spend time just focusing on Jesus and singing about Jesus and praying to Jesus. By the way, in case you didn't know it, that was my wife talking about Jesus up here during that song. And, and she knows what she's talking about because recently the dying saint she sat by was her daddy. And, and we know as we've journeyed through life, nearly married 30 years, living longer than that, man, how would we make it without holding on to Jesus? So when we sing about him, we, we're magnifying him and and he just draws us in close. You get your priorities right when you get in, your, get in God's word. I'm in a reading plan that was written a long time ago. But it's amazing how every day when I get to the scripture that God has appointed in that plan, it's applicable to my daily life. Why? Because my priorities are right. When you pray, specifically when you pray together with others, man, it just lifts you up. Why? Because that's one of the things you should prioritize. When we worry, our priorities are imbalanced. But let's look at how... Luke describes this same passage. Luke 12, 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Look at verse 25. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Now I didn't stop when Jesus said this in Matthew, but let me just point something out. How did God create the world? He spoke it into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he did this how? By saying, let there be light, let there be heavens, let there be earth. In fact, in John 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the, and the word was God, and the word was with God. That's a kind of sometimes confusing way of just reminding us that Jesus didn't just show up on the pages of the Gospels. 
He's not God Jr. that arrived there in Bethlehem. Jesus has been there from the beginning. He was a part of creation. And Jesus, who spoke the world into existence, is saying, okay, I spoke the world into existence. I created everything that is. Just add an hour to your day. Go ahead. Ever tried that? Can't do it. Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Then he says again in verse 31 here, but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. But notice this, this is a different verse. We didn't find this in Matthew. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. You see, when we worry, not only, not only do we find that our priorities are in balance, when we worry, our perspective is in balance. We don't see God for who he is. <coughs> Remember how Isaiah saw God? In Isaiah 6, he says, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And then he says, woe is me, for I am undone. God high, me low. What's your perspective of God? Jesus gives us some ways we should look at him in that one verse. Do not be afraid, little flock. Your father has pleased, been pleased to give you the kingdom First of all, if we are a little flock, who is God? Yeah, so the flock is sheep. He's our good shepherd, Scripture tells us. What do we know about sheep? This is not encouraging, church, but hear this. Sheep are dumb and sheep are defenseless. If it wasn't for the shepherd, sheep wouldn't make it. Because everybody that comes along is stronger and faster than the sheep. I mean, they look at the sheep and all they see is leg of lamb. This is bad news. But what does the shepherd do? The shepherd cares for the sheep. The shepherd meets the needs of the sheep. What does God say about what he does for you? He says, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. He says in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He's the shepherd he cares for you. That should be in your perspective. But not only that, it says, don't be afraid, little flock, because your father, the Bible says God is your father. Well, I know that's hard for some of you. Some of you have not had a, a good example here on this side of heaven of what a father looks like. I hate that. I'm, I'm so sorry. Maybe your father abandoned you and your family, or maybe they even abused you. That's happening too often in our world. Why does God choose to relate to us that way? I, I think it's because he wants us to see the unconditional love of the Father. So after raising our four boys, God allowed us to adopt this precious little girl. And she and I were walking around Target the other day. And I don't know, we were just talking. She didn't have her cane, so she was just holding my arm. And I was guiding her through. And she said something funny. And I just stopped. And I gave her a big old bear hug. And I said, Anaya. She said, What? I said, I sure do love you. She said, I love you too, Daddy. And there in Target, I was just able to say and reinforce in her, and you know what? I will always love you. I want you to understand that regardless of what you've experienced in life, regardless of what you've gone through, you have a God who loves you, a God who unconditionally loves you. God's love for you is an established fact that's already declared. Nothing can change it. Nothing can take it away. I love what the song says, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch 
his treasure. He loves us. That's why it says in Romans 5, 8 that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. But there's more. He's our caring shepherd. He's our loving father. But notice what it says. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He's our shepherd. He's our father. What's the third thing he's saying that he is? If we're in his kingdom, who is he? He's our king. He's our sovereign God. That means nothing in your life catches him off guard. That means nothing you encounter is beyond his power. When we face situations and circumstances that we don't understand, we should rest in the truth we do understand. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when we face situations and circumstances beyond our control, we should rest in the one who has control. That's Jesus. Let me just ask you about your perspective. Do you feel like you've got the right perspective of God? Because when we have the proper perspective, we remember that no matter how big our problem, our God is bigger. All right. Let me give you this last one. And these are, man, they're up there among my favorite verses in Scripture. Philippians 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. You see, not only when we worry do we find that our priorities are imbalanced. And when we worry, our perspective is imbalanced. I'm just going to tell you, when we worry, every time our prayer life is imbalanced. Because here, Jesus gives us a command and a promise. What's the command? Worry less, pray more. Let's say that together. Worry less, pray more. What's the promise when we do that? Supernatural peace. Be anxious for nothing but everything with prayer and supplication. Make your request known to God and the peace of God, which transcends our understanding. Prayer is our pathway to supernatural peace. I can't tell you how often I've prayed that with a family that's struggling with someone with illness or, or prayed that with a couple as they're walking through pain and, and hurt in marriage or, or prayed that with somebody as they face tragedy. What does that mean? God can so respond to our prayers that even when it doesn't make sense, he can give us peace that surpasses our understanding. So what do we do? We go back to that verse, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You got to come to Jesus. So, so let me wrap this up by giving you just four ways you need to regularly rest in Jesus. Number one, decide to rest on the promises of God. When I was growing up, we'd gather in church and and sometimes the piano and organ would get going on some of the hymns that we would sing. The hymns themselves just kind of made you want to bounce. And one of those songs was Standing on the Promise. Standing on the Promises of Christ my King. Listen to the second verse of, of that hymn, Standing on the Promises. Standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. 
Now listen to one of the promises. John 14. Most of you, if you've heard this, you've heard it at a funeral. But let's see what it means to us today. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me. That you also may be where I am. You know the way, the place I'm going. And then Thomas says, uh, excuse me, sir. Doubting Thomas. No. No, no, Jesus, we don't know. We have no clue what you're... Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? And then Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, what we have to decide as those who profess to follow Christ is, do we even believe the words of Jesus? Do we believe that he's a God who promises to make a way when there seems to be no way? Jesus kind of ends this discourse in verse 27 with this word. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. In other words, this peace is different. This peace doesn't make sense. This is not just feel-good cliche in the moment. So do not let your hearts be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Simple question. Are you standing on the promises of God? As the old country preachers used to say, some of you are standing, sitting on your premises when you should be standing on the promises. Amen. If you study how many promises in Scripture, people would tell you there's between 3,000 and 30,000 promises. At least 7,000 of them directed at us. I'm not good at math. There's 365 days in a year. So there's at least enough for me to lean on the promise of God every day. Number two, decide to rest in the power of God. We sing about it. We sing that he's the God who still does miracles. Do you believe that? We sing that he can move the mountains in our life. Do you believe that? Well, listen to Matthew 8, familiar passage. Then he, that's Jesus, got into the boat and his disciples followed him. And suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. Now, if you hang out here very often, you've heard me say a bunch. Here's the facts. We're either all in a storm, we've just come out of a storm, or we may not realize it, but we're headed into a storm. The storms of life are inevitable. But what does it say in this storm? Notice what it says. But Jesus was sleeping. The storms of our life don't catch God off guard. So the disciples woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And he replied, is this familiar? You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. And the men were amazed and they said, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I want to tell you something today. Your God is powerful enough to handle any situation you're in. And here's what I've learned. It's better to be in a storm with Jesus than to be anywhere else without him. Decide to rest in the power of God. Thirdly, decide to rest in the presence of Jesus. 
I'm just trying to cover you in Scripture. Let's look at another passage, Matthew 14. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in what? Fear. Fear. What is worry? Fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, again, look at Peter. If Peter would have been functioning on all cylinders, he would have just went to Jesus. But he still doesn't believe him. He says, okay, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you on the water. So Jesus appeased him, and Jesus said, come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water, and he came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, now that, we're not preaching through these texts, but isn't that interesting? When he saw the wind. Truth is, you don't see the wind. You see the impact, the effects of the wind. And that's what gets us. We see what's going on around us. And we get afraid. And he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and called him. And here he says it again. You of little faith. Why did you doubt? I read this passage and I... I'm overwhelmed by this reality. When our eyes are on Jesus, we can do the seemingly impossible. But when we take our eyes off of him, even the best of us begin to sink. And we will. That's just who we are. So what do we do? What did Peter do? What did Peter do when he began to sink? He cried out to Jesus. He cried out to the Lord. When you are filled with worry, when you're overcome with doubt, when you don't know the way to forward, that's when you cry out to the Lord. That's when you let him know that you desperately need him. Jesus called him, oh, you of little faith. But you know what Jesus said elsewhere in Scripture? He said, even if you just have a little faith, you can say to that mountain, move, and it'll move. Number four, decide to remember the provisions of God. Decide to remember the provisions of God. You remember the story of the children of Israel? They were in slavery in Egypt. God sent all these plagues. And yet he also hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the Pharaoh didn't let the children of Israel go until um, what instituted the Passover. That God told through Moses his children to take the blood of a lamb and to put it on their doorpost. And when the angel of death would come, if they saw the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, they would pass over. But for every other home in Egypt, the firstborn, human and animals, would die. By the way, the Bible says that there'll be a moment where every one of us stand before God and he'll determine if our, our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And, and what will determine that is whether or not our lives have been marked by the blood of the Lamb, the, the blood of Jesus Christ, whether we've allowed what he did on the cross to cover our sin. So what happened? Well, the Israelites did that. And the angel of death passed over and they were spared. And the Pharaoh got so upset that he said, all right, you guys get out of here. 
and he told them to leave. And so that's what happened in Exodus 20 and verse 50, I mean 12 and verse 50. It says, all the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. Well, what happens next? They're out of Egypt. They're on the road to freedom to the promised land, and look in Exodus 13 and verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Isn't that interesting? God knows. God knows your weaknesses. He knows your shortcomings. And yet sometimes he lets us go through the process. So that's what happened. Pharaoh's heart got hardened again. He starts chasing out of the, after the Israelites. And now they find themselves camping with the Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptian army behind them. And what happens? In Exodus 14 and verse 10, it says, As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were Egyptians marching after them, and they were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And that's what we do. God can deliver us one day. And the next day we can act like he's trying to kill us. How soon we forget the great hand of God. How often is worry in our life. Because we've not rested in the hand of God. So what does Moses do? Exodus 14, 13. Moses answered the people and says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Say this with me. Say the Lord will fight for you. Now let's make it personal. Say, the Lord will fight for me. And he did. We get the whole account here. Verse 30 says, that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. See, Moses saw God in what seemed to be the impossible. That's your key out of worry. Understanding that God specializes in making a way when there seems to be no way. And so you look back and you trust him. Let's take another poll. How many of you would say, Pastor, without any doubt, I know a time in my past where God provided for me. Let me see your hands. Yeah, me too. Why do we forget it? Why do we not rely on him as we go forward? So here's what I want us to do. I want us to respond to worry, to anxiety... The way that Moses and the Israelites did. Look at Exodus 14, 31. Or, 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 actually, look at Exodus 15, verse 1. Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he's highly exalted. Both horse and driver he's hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. You know what they did? They understood that when we worry, we've got to allow our worry to be turned to worship. Because when we worship, we're impacting our priorities, our perspective, and we're crying out to God. 
and we're letting him meet our needs. I said this last week, but it bears repeating. Even in our moments of greatest need, God will put a song in our heart when our hearts are in tune with his. That's the key to dealing with anxiety in your life. Would you bow your head with me? And let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying this thing you're dealing with, your storm, is not real. I'm not even saying your fears, the things that are creating worry in your life, are irrational. I'm just saying there is a way out. He'll make a way when there seems to be no way. So you've just got to decide whether or not you're going to trust him. And I've tried to cover you up in scripture, Christ follower, to let you know you've got some resource to do that. So if you're dealing with worry right now and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe you would just, in this moment, confess that to him. Maybe you'd repent and just say, Lord, I know I'm taking things on to me that are not of you. And so I'm going to lay them back down. I'm going to tell you what we're tempted to do. We go to God in prayer. We bow down and we turn things over to him. We lay them at his feet. And then when we say amen, we get them back up and put them back in our pockets. I'm asking you to cast your cares on him today, Christ follower. For he cares for you. But somebody's here and you've never begun a relationship with Christ. You don't know what it means to trust Jesus once and for all as not only your forgiver, but as your Savior. See, the Bible says you were born separated from him, and if that's left undealt with, you'll be separated from him forever. But God does not want that. He desperately wants to fellowship with you and to live in right relationship with you. And that's why Jesus came, and that's why Jesus died on the cross, to pay the price that you could never pay for your sinfulness, to offer you forgiveness and grace. So if you've never received that, would you be willing to receive his forgiveness today? Just like two individuals did in our Wednesday evening service in this very room. Just like three individuals did at our ministry center on Friday night. Just like at least one individual did in our first service on this campus this morning. Would you trust Christ with your life? Maybe you'd pray this simple prayer to him. Maybe you'd just say, dear Jesus. Just you and him, just cry it out. Dear Jesus, I know I need you. I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven. And I need to be saved. I believe you died for my sin. And I believe you're alive today. So I receive your forgiveness. And I give you control of my life. From this moment on, I'm going to follow you. I tell him thank you. Our heads are still bowed and our eyes are closed for a moment more, but I always like to celebrate if you begin that relationship with Christ. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to welcome you to God's family. So wherever you are, if you just prayed that prayer and begin that relationship with Christ, 
Would you just lift your hand? You can put it right back down. You began that relationship with him today. It's the most important thing you could ever do. If you did that, welcome to God's family. Welcome to God's family. So, Father, I thank you today because your word gives us hope. Your word, which is truth, points the way. It guides us. It directs us. Your word changes our lives. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the reminder that your presence and provision in our life is evident of your power and the ability you have to impact anything that we face. So we declare over our anxiety, over our worry, there is power in the name of Jesus. We declare over our fear, over our doubts, there is power in the name of Jesus. We declare over those circumstances that seem out of our control, that we don't understand, there is power in the name of Jesus. So Jesus, we continue to worship you. We praise your name, even now, in Jesus' name.